welcome to a new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. I'm Tyler, joined once again by Matt for a full episode. It's cold outside, but as so many people love to say, it's getting hot inside the gyms. We saw some hot shooting this week, and hopefully that'll help us all to overcome this snowstorm that I'm pretty sure hit 13 of the 14 A-10 schools. It was too warm for Davidson. They just got some rain. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, uh, it was a really fun week in the A-Town. We had some drama. We had a coaching change. Had some great games, as you said. And I'm, I'm excited to unpack it all. Just a lot going on this time of year. So, yeah, it should be a fun podcast today. Yeah, we had five huge storylines this week. And honestly, it was hard for us to even figure out how to lead this. But three of the five are converging together on Tuesday. That is the fact that Duquesne is unveiling their not technically new arena. It's still the same building, but they basically gutted it down to the studs and rebuilt it. This comes at a time that the Dukes are playing their best basketball of the year. They've had a fantastic two weeks going three and one with a close loss to the first place Bonnies. And they're going to take on Dayton who's coming off of their best week of basketball of the whole year. And so everything is just pointing towards a Tuesday night ESPNU showdown here. Some of the biggest things going on right now all coming together into one. Yeah, I think that's a great way for us to kick off the week. Um, we were expecting a second game on Tuesday, but we'll get into this a little bit more later. Looks like Richmond might not be playing this week. But Dayton and Duquesne, two teams that are playing some great basketball, probably both playing their best ball of the season right now. And for them to open up a new gym on national television, this has got to be one of the most exciting home games for Duquesne in quite a while. So for those who have seen the pretty pictures but maybe aren't familiar with Palumbo, and especially those who are familiar, it still sits on the same spot. There's still pieces of the arena that are the same, but of their eight sections, it appears that five of them have been torn out and replaced with new seats. One of the bleacher sections is gone completely, and another section has been turned into some new luxury boxes. So I actually think Palumbo reduced their capacity a little bit. Not the worst idea in the world, considering that they basically don't sell out anymore, and their best games, attendance-wise, tend to get moved down the street to PPG Paints Arena. Um, also, I guess it's not called Palumbo anymore. It's now the UPMC Cooper Fieldhouse, but new scoreboards, uh, new athlete weight room, the concourses have been completely redone. They basically overhauled everything that they did in the last renovation at the turn of last decade, but it, it's a sparkling new Duquesne arena. Um, sadly, most of us will not get to see it this season. And if anyone in the athletic department is listening, you know, it looks beautiful in the photos, but if you really want us to truly talk this up, you need to let us see it in person. I'm not e I don't even care about getting in for a game, but if anyone who's the right person is listening to this, just let me in on like a Thursday afternoon when it's empty and let me walk around for 10 minutes. Because it looks great, but I just want to make sure that it's as great as it seems. Yeah, I mean, the pictures just look amazing. The new video boards around the arena the actual court itself, they've got the multicolored stain pattern, pattern going on, which looks good. Uh, the new Lion logo, which I actually haven't really talked to you about. Do you like that new 
sort of rebrand that Duquesne's been doing recently. It's kind of cool, but are they Columbia University? Like, <laughs> they st- the, the weird slanted D is basically an offshoot of the Ball State logo, and now the Lion is just stealing from Columbia. So I don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, anything that makes us not see that diagonal slanted D, which apparently is not acknowledged anywhere in the university besides the athletic programs, is better. Because that was just stupid. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, no, I'm just happy for Duquesne. It was definitely time for a change. Uh, The two of us were both at the very last game at the old Palumbo Center between Duquesne and Dayton two years ago. And the biggest thing I remember from being at the gym that night is that it was pouring rain outside. And in the second half, the ceiling started leaking on the seats directly in front of me. And it's just, you know, it, it was a fun environment. Uh, a lot of people were there that night, but the actual venue itself wasn't really up to standard compared to a lot of the A-10. But I think this really shows that Duquesne, you know, with this new gym and hiring Keith Van Braun a couple years ago and rebranding some of the athletics, I think they're committed to trying to win in the A-10. And, you know, compared to where the program was five years ago, they're so much further ahead than where they used to be. And I, I think this new arena or basically the new arena, because it's pretty unrecognizable for a lot of people. I'm excited for the future of Duquesne basketball. And look, the old arena was the perfect size for a game. It was a pretty accessible location. And really, there was not a bad seat in the house in terms of a viewing angle. Some of the seats themselves were physically awful. And the leaky roof has been a problem for over a decade now. So they kind of ha- they had really the core of a good environment there, but the guts was just incredibly unimpressive. And it seems like they've really done a good job of fixing that. And so the, they might be putting all the pieces together right at a time where I'm not necessarily sure that the program is going to ascend to a new height but they certainly have a new consistent level of good performance. And it's all coming together at the same time. Duquesne is not a disgrace anymore in terms of being a program. No, they aren't. I I think, you know, if we did this podcast like five years ago, I mean, I know we make jokes about like the teams we'd want to kick out of the conference. And honestly, I mean, maybe we wouldn't have, have had these conversations since you're a Duquesne fan, but I feel like a lot of people would have said, I don't know, does Duquesne really belong in the A-10? But right now where they are with Dan Brott building the program up and they've been getting better every year for the most part, I they're solidly, like, they have what it takes to be a decent A-10 program. And I don't think of them the same way at all as I used to back when they were consistently one of the bottom teams in the conference. It, it seems like that was such a long time ago right now. Yeah, and they've certainly built themselves a new recruiting advantage in doing this just the nicer arena like I said they also completely tore down the weight room that is something that you can uh that I have been able to see there's a huge outside window and if you just were to walk up to Duquesne's campus right now you can get a great view of that weight room it it looks stellar um I've been down in the locker rooms, the practice gyms, which I am of the belief were kept intact. They're pretty solid down there too. So 
I'm not going to sit here and act like this is some A plus gorgeous power five level facility, but it's pretty good. And it's certainly for a mid major, it's going to be a little bit of an appealing recruiting advantage for the Dukes. They've, they've improved basically every aspect of this thing of this program so far. It's a town that doesn't have a pro basketball team. Pitt hasn't exactly been luring in new fans the past few years. And, you know, it's certainly a good time that when we come out of COVID land next season, Duquesne might be able to recruit some new fans. So in one of the pictures that I think came from the official account, or maybe it came from a Duquesne fan, I don't remember, but you could see in the corner of the image, the scoreboard, which showed Duquesne beating Dayton 99 to 10, I believe. Um, And there were like 44 minutes left in the first half. So I think they're just testing it out, see how the scoreboard would work to make sure it would be ready to go for this week. But I think we should spend a couple minutes since this is going to be a nationally televised game, nine o'clock on ESPNU Tuesday night. What do you, what are your expectations for this game? The first time at UD arena, Dayton won pretty comfortably after a close first half, the Flyers pulled ahead in the second. But I think it's a pretty interesting game just with Duquesne also coming off a couple solid performances this week. So, by the way, um, just a funny thing that came to my mind during this, Jalen Crutcher and Anthony Grant were there when the old building closed. They shut it down, and now they're going to get a chance to open yeah. up the new one. Um, same matchup in both, both occasions. There's actually not even that many Duquesne players left who played in that game. Um, even some of the guys who were on the team, like Austin Rotrov, he was hurt and didn't play in that game. So I think it's just the three seniors that were actually in the box score that night. But both teams coming off their best week of the year. We'll cover that in a f- few moments here. The first game of this, of this rivalry this year over at UD Arena was basically when Duquesne was still getting their legs back under them after losing Sincere Carey, losing Maceo Austin, at least temporarily. They held around, just didn't look good all game. So I'm not sure we can base much off of that performance. For me, it, it's, I think it's going to come down to the clash of the size on the perimeter. Duquesne is going to be able to play a lot of their big perimeter freshmen in this game, Toby Akani, Chad Baker, Tyson Acuff, to try to match up and counter the size of Ibby Watson and Elijah Weaver. Not to mention the fact that Jalen Crutcher is significantly taller than Tavian Dunmartin. And so what I'm going to be interested to see is how well do those young freshmen hold up on defense against the three Dayton guards. We're seeing them start to be aggressive again after really being flummoxed against VCU. Duquesne does not have a roster that is kind of set up to pressure those guys in the way that we've seen them have problems lately. So how do they hold up one-on-one? Can Toby O'Connor keep Ibby Watson under control? Can Tyson Acuff corral these guys on defense when he's in the game? That's, that's the single most important thing for me. Yeah, I, I do think this is a different-looking Duquesne team than the first game these teams played. 
Really, Marcus Weathers had 19, but no one else was in double figures. But right now with Duquesne, you have Chad Baker coming off a couple hot shooting nights. Toby O'Connor's had a couple good games since then. And Tyson Acuff also coming off a good game. So these freshmen are starting to get more involved, and I definitely think they're going to have a bigger impact. I think the key for Dayton that I'm really encouraged by in the past week is that they've been rebounding the ball really well. I still can't believe against St. Louis they only gave up two offensive rebounds, which has to be some sort of record because Dayton isn't all that great of a rebounding team. And then even though they gave up more against Rhode Island on Saturday, they held their own under the basket. I think that in the past, that's been an area where Duquesne's been able to take advantage of Dayton on the boards. That's certainly what happened last year when the games were pretty close. I think if Dayton rebounds as they did this past week, they should be able to pull out another victory on the road. But, you know, Duquesne having these freshmen all of a sudden stepping up as they've been getting more minutes, that kind of throws a new wrinkle into the matchup that Dayton's got to plan on. And the big thing, too, that goes right along with what you just pointed out is that the two seniors for Duquesne are starting to roll again, Marcus Weathers and Michael Hughes, guys who were, quite frankly, disappointments to start the year. They have their energy back, and it's not even this week. It goes back to really the second half of the comeback against Rhode Island. They're alive now. Hughes has put up now over the past four games rebounding performances of 10, 12, 11, and 7. He scored double-digit points in five straight games. Weathers is fresh off of two double-doubles in his first 20-point game of the year. And those guys look reinvigorated. They look like the guys that we were arguing as all-conference picks before the season started. So the rebounding battle is probably the most fascinating coin flip of this game. But you mentioned Marcus Weathers, how well he played last time. I think he's the key for Duquesne. He's been their best player all year. There's no question about that. He's finally starting to play like that guy again. And as great as Mustafa Amziel has continued to be on the offensive end, we're starting to see him get a little bit exposed on defense here these last few weeks. Javante Perkins really got to him at the end of that slew game. And I think coaches are seeing his really kind of lack of foot speed as something that can be targeted. Marcus Weathers is just simply stronger than Omziel. Marcus Weathers is stronger than most people in this conference. This is a game where he's going to be hunting for a 20 and 10 performance and Duquesne's going to need it. Yeah, he's a, he's a tough matchup for a lot of teams, but in particular for Dayton. I think Weathers is a little bit too quick for Omziel. I think he's a little bit too strong for Zimmy Wokeji to guard him. And I, I think Dayton threw both of them at, at Weathers in the first game. I don't know. That, that's going to be a tough matchup. That's a game where Dayton misses Trey Landers and Ryan Mikesell quite a bit. But we'll see. I mean, if they, it might just be that Dayton has to focus on limiting Duquesne's other players. Because last time they kind of let Weathers get his in the first half. And they played good enough defense on the rest of the team. So maybe that won't make or break the game. But... I wouldn't be surprised to see Weathers have a nice game. Yeah, and I think that really whether this game goes over or under could be a good hint as to who's going to win. If this becomes just a slow it down, limit the possessions, pound it through Marcus Weathers type of game, then Duquesne might be in decent shape. The Dukes just simply don't have the perimeter guys to win one-on-one battles against Dayton's good perimeter defense. 
and they're going to have to limit the possessions, hope that one of the young guys can get hot from three, and just let Weathers do his thing. If Dayton's getting out and playing quick and we get aggressive Crutcher and EB with the Inferno, and one of my favorite elements of an A-10 player right now, reckless Elijah Weaver. I love it when he loses his mind because every horrible shot he takes seemingly goes in and it seems to give that offense a spark. But if things are going quick and downhill, Dayton's going to run them over like a Mack truck. So Duquesne's going to have to play this out slow. And my big X factor for this game, Jordy Chamunga against Michael Hughes, maybe, no, not the top two. Those two and Mikel Mitchell are the kings of just getting into idiotic foul trouble in this conference right now. If one of the two of them takes two quick fouls in the first five minutes, that's going to be a really, really bad sign for their team in this game. Because I think they can both handle each other. But as we've seen, when either of those two guys gets put on a weaker defender, they're liable to just go to town. Yeah, that is a good point. It could be some foul trouble early in this game. But Ken Palm right now has this as a one-point Dayton win, so either way, it should be a very close game, and I'm definitely looking forward. I think I'm leaning Dayton in this one just since the Flyers have been playing well against really good teams in the past week. Well, Duquesne, although they're looking great too, it did come against some of the bottom teams in the conference, but either way, I'm expecting it to be very close and very competitive. I, one point's a little bit lower than I would think that the betting line will come in at. I Just simply put, Dayton's just on a higher tier than the Dukes right now. Dayton is the dark horse could steal a bid level, while Duquesne's just simply the frisky middle-of-the-pack team that could maybe upset somebody. I mean, the Flyers are just better, and we saw it this week. Jalen Crutcher gets going and dominates the St. Louis game. Ibby Watson gets going and dominates the Rhode Island game. And just quite frankly, Duquesne doesn't have the ability to have a guy go to either of those two levels. That's why Dayton is still dangerous. That's why they're still somewhere in the four to six conversation in this league. Yeah. All right. I'm ready to move on. But one last thing, I am so over Jalen Crutcher. The road, the announcer for the Rhode Island game was using that in the first half of the game. I enough is enough. Like it's a good nickname. It's clever when he makes a big basket in the second half. But I think they got to tone it down just a bit. Although he has been playing great, and especially against St. Louis down the stretch, like that's a that's an appropriate time to use Jalen Clutcher. But it's better if it's like once a game. I think it loses its luster if you're. If you're like introducing him at the 17 minute mark of the first half when he makes his first three of the game, just a little bit overused. And by the way, I don't have my normal uh, bad announcing complaints. I, I actually thought that we got some decent crews for the big A10 games this week. But hey, CBS, like, could you fix the play by play guys, Mike, in that Dayton game? It was horrible. Yeah. Our, our audio quality on this Zoom call for this. <laughs> just hastily put together podcast is going to be way better than that. I, like, I, I, just, I don't know what the hell they were doing. That was rough. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we're talking about the big games, big like announcing crews. I guess you, are you ready to move on to a big game that never ended up happening and that 
sparked a little bit of controversy across the conference last week. Yeah, as we go into our recap of last week, I guess we have to start here. St. Louis and Richmond set to be the Friday A-10 game on ESPN2. Just out of nowhere, it's canceled a few hours before. St. Louis was there. And for two days, we got to watch the two fan bases just fight each other on Twitter over whose fault it was. Well, it looks like it was the right call. We're recording this on Sunday. It's about 2.45 out here on the East, 1.45 for the St. Louis fans. Richmond has just gone on pause, and it's now clear what happened. There was a little bit of skepticism as to whether or not it would be safe for the Spiders to play. Richmond clearly thought it was. St. Louis clearly thought it wasn't. Maybe it was. But with the Spiders going on pause, I'm going to say that it was probably the right move for St. Louis to just pack it up and head on home. This was just a really strange situation on Friday afternoon because both teams' athletic directors were kind of pointing fingers at each other, saying like they were in the right, the other team's in the wrong here. And it's kind of the first case I've really heard of in college basketball. I think there were a few incidents in football but where the teams kind of disagreed on the COVID protocols and whether or not a game should be played I I understand the frustration at the time on Friday because basically St. Louis just said we're not comfortable with the protocols based on the advice of our medical team we don't want to play and there wasn't really too much more than that given so I understand why fans were frustrated at the time but you're right I think with Richmond going on pause this is kind of a bad look for the spiders athletic program and it i agree that it seems like this is the correct decision that they canceled that game i don't think you can fault them at all i mean the fact that richmond had to shut things down again just really goes to show you that it 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 just wasn't it just wouldn't have been the right call to play that game so no and it was bad timing too from st louis's perspective because Look, I I understand, like, there were a lot of jokes and conspiracies going around, but it did come after Dayton beat them at home on Tuesday night last week. So some people were suggesting, oh, maybe St. Louis doesn't think they can win. They're ducking the game. Obviously, that didn't happen. The Atlantic 10 approved the cancellation of the game. So there was a legitimate reason, clearly. And it's just – it's a tough situation, too, because if you're St. Louis – I mean, one, you want to be careful. You don't want to have to go on another COVID pause that could jeopardize your season. But two, you also want to make sure you just get enough games because you need 13 to play in the NCAA tournament. Right now, the Billikens only have nine. They will, but it's maybe not worth risking it from their perspective. Like, say they play this game, get another positive test later on this week, and miss another couple weeks. Like, that could have happened. And... I don't think they're in danger of missing that 13-game requirement, but it's just a tough balance because they want to make sure they can play as much of the season out as they can, do what they can to build a resume. And unfortunately, you know, they had to make that decision to not play the game. But I, you can't fault them at all, especially after what came out today. Well, And by the way, look, if St. Louis wins that game, you pick up a Q1 road win – on your second game back from a month-long COVID pause. And with where their resume is already at, like 
that basically would have put things away for them for in terms of an at-large bid as long as they just didn't completely crumble. Yeah. It, so, it lo- losing it wouldn't have really hurt that bad either. No, I mean, it, it wouldn't have really. Although I am, I don't want to say I'm worried about St. Louis, but losing to Dayton at home, like that's not something you would have expected at all before their COVID pause. And it, it's understandable they'd be a little bit rusty. But I don't know. The good news is they have a couple games coming up this week against some easier, or well, they have one easier opponent. They played LaSalle before a big game over the weekend against St. Bonaventure. But I don't know. I I said this last week. It might take them a couple games to get back to their form from November and December because they really, they didn't look as sharp as I think a lot of people expected in the first game back, which makes sense. They didn't play for a month. So this, honestly, this is really how we should have opened things up. Sadly, COVID prevents us from being able to only talk about the games that have been played. But Dayton waltzing into St. Louis and beating the Billikens is probably the biggest and most important story of the week. And, you know, Dayton played probably their best game of the year. This was not an asterisk win for them, despite the fact that it probably is an asterisk loss for the Billikens, who basically were at B-level basketball by their standards all game and still only lost by five. Mm -hmm. I I came out of that actually kind of remembering how good St. Louis just really is, that they looked completely unimpressive, played an NIT-level team at their best and still almost pulled it out. And in reality, they might have if the if King Clutcher just didn't come through at the end. Yeah, I actually thought St. Louis was playing really well those last few minutes of the game. Javante Perkins finally got going. He was finding his groove with his foul line jumper again. And, you know, if the game had been 44 minutes instead of 40, I think St. Louis takes it. Yeah, I mean, St. Louis did play well down the stretch, and they did tie it up pretty late in the second half. But this was clearly Dayton's best game of the season to this point. And you have to give them credit, even though Javante Perkins was doing his thing at the end, scoring at will. Uh, UD made pretty much all of their free throws down the stretch, and they were able to hold on to the lead. So, yeah, really impressive win for Dayton there. And, you know, St. Louis, it's not like they just rolled over and lost. Dayton gave them everything they had that night. So I wouldn't. After the game, I took a little bit of exception because they were calling it a bad loss on the post-game show, which statistically it kind of is because Dayton just shot their resume with a couple bad losses. But I don't think it's going to have a huge impact for St. Louis. I I think that hopefully the committee kind of understands what happened here, that it's their first game in a month. It's also a top – they also lost to a top 100 team. So yeah. I will never consider losing to a top 100 team to be a bad loss. There are bad moments to have that loss, but losing to a top 100 team is never, is never the kind of thing that keeps you out of the tournament when you have a solid resume. And in the game itself, Jalen Crutcher, 27 points, Ibby Watson, 18 points, Elijah Weaver, 12 points. And does anything really need to be said? When those three play well, Dayton can beat anybody. And, you know, I, I'm feeling like a broken record on this this year. Last year, my, 
the thing I harped on way too much was that VCU never played with pace and it was just stupid. This year, it's Dayton's three guards just need to take the game into their hands and get it done. This is not the egalitarian ball movement team that was going to be a one seed last year. It needs to be a different formula. And both games this week, they found that formula and just rode it to hell. Yeah, they really did. And I, I think, you know, hopefully for St. Louis' perspective, like maybe the Dayton game will look a little bit better if the Flyers keep it rolling as they did this past week. But I think for now, let's just enjoy the St. Louis pillow fight jokes while we can. Probably not going to last much longer, but this is your reminder. I, I have to enjoy this a little bit. They are tied for last with St. Joe's at the moment. I'm sure they're going to rise up from that pretty soon. But yeah, A10 Twitter was having some fun with that last week. And b before we move on to the final big news story of the week, just one other thing I want to touch on from an on-court perspective. So, of course, Fordham fires Neubauer. Their first game back, their interim coach uh, probably loses his chance of being able to uh, – take the permanent job getting annihilated by Duquesne at home doesn't exactly scream hire me <laughs> it's actually not them I want to talk about though just we touched on Duquesne they're finally finally getting it going and turning into a good team I know people had them as a borderline pillow fight team a few weeks ago that was never going to happen um they played the two worst teams in the conference this week, but they just absolutely freaking killed both of them. And to me, as someone who sat through both of those games in their entirety, I'm really liking what Duquesne is starting to get out of their five freshmen. All five of them have shown glimpses of various things, but the two most important, Chad Baker who is just like a human flamethrower every other game at this point and a dead match in the other games, uh, goes five for five from three against Rhode Island two weeks ago, goes seven for 11 against Fordham on Wednesday. Just kind of never got into rhythm in the St. Joe's game, only took four shots, um, spent most of the game getting yelled at by Keith Dambrot to stop, yell, to stop trash talking the other team. He's this shooter that we've been dying for Duquesne to have ever since Micah Mason left. And then Tyson Acuff, the backup point guard, who is clearly still developing in so many different areas. But he's a 6'7 guy with decent court vision and a good-looking shot. And he is going to be a very dangerous player, let alone a possible star these next three years. Yeah, I, I, was, I had a bad feeling for Fordham in that first game. I, I wasn't sure that would be a smooth transition, and Duquesne just pounded them. But I guess getting on to that, you know, the Fordham, the big news where Jeff Neubauer finally got fired, which I, I don't think it was a big surprise to anybody. I, I agree with the first thing you said. I don't think they're interim coach. You know, he's been with the program for, I think, 10 or 11 years now. What would he have to do, like, just, you know, to, like, humor ourselves? Would he need to win out pretty much? Because it seems like Fordham's pretty set on moving in a different direction. Well, I think it really – I think it ties into the discussion as a whole, which is what is Fordham's commitment level about to be here? Mm -hmm. Because if this is business as usual and 
you know, COVID has hurt athletic department budgets, so it might be business worse than usual. If they're just going to these coaches and basically offering them Jeff Neubauer's contract, they might have to hire their interim coach. Because yeah. I don't – like, this is, this is like the Cleveland Browns when they were at their worst. And, you know, the year they hired Rob Chizinski, he was apparently their eighth or ninth choice. <laughs> there were guys turning down the job to stay as assistants. So – I don't like they have to they have to make a new commitment to the program. People are saying like, oh, could they get Rick Patino? Well that's gotta that's be happening their, anyway. That but, has to be their first phone call though, right? Like just in case. He's already in the city. Yeah, I, I guess. But even a guy like Jared Grasso, who's putting together a pretty nice program at Bryant, he can just stay at Bryant, try to make the NCAA tournament the next year or two. Beat you and then, yeah, and then all of a sudden, like, let's say Matt McCall gets fired, or hell, even the opposite way, rides Trey Mitchell to the promised land and gets a better job. Like, Jared Grasso would all of a sudden be a top-notch candidate for the UMass job. He could potentially find his way into a Missouri Valley job. Like, I wouldn't, if you're a coach with a legitimate up-and-coming resume, I wouldn't take the Neubauer deal. That's insanity. Now, if they say, hey, we are, we are committing to raise the salary, we are committing to make some facilities upgrades, then just like Jeff Goodman said after that job came open, it actually does become decently appealing. You're in a Power 8 conference. You're in New York City. Your expectations are god-awful. Like, if you win six games in conference, you look like a freaking genius. We will not, or we will install enough air conditioning in the Rose Hill gym that you can coach with a shirt on. That might be a pitch. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, there is a new athletic director at Fordham. So you would hope like maybe that culture change can help them out. The other head coach I've seen getting some buzz is Shaheen Holloway, who's nine and six with St. Peter's right now. So that's the same region too. Maybe that would be a, a good transition, but. I don't know. Fordham's just, they haven't really gotten these coaching changes right in their last couple tries. So hopefully this one works out better, but it's just, uh, yeah, not, not surprising though that they moved on from Neubauer. And I guess since we said a lot of nice things about Dayton too, so I think we can also point out Jeff Neubauer's last win came against Dayton, which is awful as that was, that was, that's kind of funny to think about. I'll admit it. Yeah, and I'm sure the VCU fans will have fun with that for years. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, the, the last thing I want to say about this is basically it's, it's in the hands of the athletic director and the donors right now. If they don't make some sort of tangible facilities upgrade or – hire a coach at the level of a Rick Pitino, who is just a great coach and honestly can probably fix any program, but you're definitely going to have to pay up for him. Mm -hmm. Then, I mean, if you're a guy like Shaheen Holloway, you're a known, you're a known name from your days playing at Seton Hall. You have a resume of a decade under Kevin Willard. Like, why would you throw away your current ascending path to take that job because unless Shaheen Holloway is a truly incredible coach 
if they don't fix anything there, he's getting fired in four years. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right about that. Um, I guess, you know, two fun names I do want to throw out, which these aren't going to happen. But uh, Jim Ferry right now, interim head coach at Penn State. If Penn State decides to hire a permanent head coach, maybe Jim Ferry's interested in coming back to the A-10. The other option, which would never happen, like even less likely, but right now Indiana's four and five in the Big Ten. And, you know, if they bought him out and Archie Miller gets fired, I think he can do better than Fordham, but that would also be very funny. So I'd love to see an old A-10 coach get a shot of you. Just entertaining from our perspective, I think. Well, Archie's in kind of the same boat as Patina, where Archie Miller actually probably could fix the Fordham program, but you better be ready to just go to a salary level that Fordham's never gone to before. Oh, yeah, and that, those aren't, like, serious, like, especially the Archie one. I mean, I'm not seriously saying that would happen, but that would mostly just be if, like, Indiana really collapsed here. And I, even then, like, Archie could get a better, like, shoot, he could – coach george mason if you wanted to maybe <laughs> um or well, another jim, like good mid-major the jim fairy things i mean it's not that ridiculous penn state's been kind of a disappointment this year i don't think he's going to keep the job and so for him his path forward is does he want to continue to be the head assistant at a penn state level program like a a mediocre power five school or maybe a good mid-major or is he just itching to get back to being a head coach? And if that's the case, Fordham might be the best head coaching job he could get. I, I just, a guy like that who is a little bit older and who has already taken the step up, I don't see him wanting to go back all the way down to the Northeast Conference or the Metro or the Colonial. So if he wants to be a head coach, then I don't think it's crazy to think that he would go to Fordham. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I, I haven't seen that one at all, but I was thinking about it, and it kind of makes sense, I guess, but I don't know. One more name that I saw that I was really excited about was former George Mason coach Paul Hewitt, but it turns out Hewitt actually just took the head coaching job with the Clippers G League affiliate, so that one's not going to happen, I guess. That one also would have been pretty funny, though. I know our George Mason listeners would have had some thoughts on that. Yeah, but G League coach, G League coaches don't really stick around long. Oh, so that one's possible then. Yeah, that, that's okay. I mean, it's basically for the coaches; they treat their G League jobs in the way the players do. Oh, this okay. is this is a stop. You're just trying to, uh, you're just trying to rebuild your resume a little bit, and so. Yeah, I mean, Paul Hewitt's another guy that I actually think would fall under this, the same boat as Ferry. Obviously, yeah. he's had a lot more success than Ferry has in his career, but I can't imagine that he would want to go back down back down to the level of like Siena, where he was, where a job that he took in the same year that we were both born. So <laughs> I, that's one where if Fordham could just boost the money, boost the facilities just a little bit. I think they could become appealing to Paul Hewitt. And hey, how about Derek Kellogg currently coaching at Long Island University uh, with? moderate success i don't know if he wants to get back in the a10 coaching game but yeah i, I mean this is know. the pond that they're fishing in right now yeah without changing anything you're just looking at basically also ran head coaches 
or maybe an up and comer who's like a super diamond in the rough. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I like mean, like kind of Jamie and Christian going to GW type of resume. Yeah, they should they know how to beat Jamie and Christian. That's Take for sure. Care. That's the one coach that Jeff Newbauer had a winning record against, probably. But all right. I think I'm I'm done with Fordham unless you have any other thoughts. No, um just to I'm I'm intrigued by the Paul Hewitt thing now, though the <laughs> the pathway from the Agua Caliente Clippers of Ontario that is their real name. Yeah, pathway from there to Fordham, it's it. Yeah, that's one I'd keep an eye on. I th- I think in terms of content, the funnest potential hires because they're not getting Patino. The no. funnest potential hires from a content standpoint are definitely either Hewitt or Ferry. Yeah, well Archie too, but that one would never happen. They're not getting Archie. That one wasn't real, but yeah. <laughs> if if Archie gets fired from Indiana, honestly, he'll end up at like NC State. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> or some some sort of like lower level Power Five program, maybe like Wichita. I, I actually just don't. T- I don't think Archie would. F- I don't think Archie's prospects would be low enough to end up at Fordham. I think Archie, like someone who lives and breathes basketball, I think he would quit coaching before taking the forum job, honestly. I just honestly think he would end up somewhere else on like the Dayton tier of a, a top-notch yeah. mid-major job or a, or a middle-of-the-road power five job. Nah, I agree, but it's still kind of fun to think about. But I guess one more segment we kind of had planned with some crazy things going on in the markets right now. I think we wanted to uh, have a couple buys and sells in the A-10 right now, you know, manage our own basketball portfolios. Um, so, Tyler, you're between the two of us. You're more of the expert in finance. Uh, do you want to go first with one of your buys or sells in A-10 stocks? Uh, I'll actually, I'll, you know what? No, I'm going to defer to you because this was your idea. I want you, I want you to have first crack at this one. All right. That sounds good. You know what? For my first buy, this is going to sound kind of weird. I'm going to buy ourselves the three bid league because right now I've seen a lot of people doubting the A10. I've heard a lot of people saying it's going to be a one or two bid league for sure. I'm not sure that's true because right now St. Louis is still in a good position St. Bonaventure looks like a potential auto qualifier, and they also have built up, at least based on the net rankings, they would make it as of today. And I really don't think VCU or Richmond are done quite yet. So I'm going to say that the A-10 still gets three bids. I'm buying that idea. VCU in particular, they still have five quad two and two Q1 games left. So they've got a lot of opportunities, and they're 44th in the net rankings. I think they have a much easier path, or I don't want to say easier path, but they have a much more like possible path to the tournament than people are giving them credit for. So I, I'm going to say we still get three bids, and that's my first buy of the day. We're certainly getting two. This is not, this is not where we were two years ago. Uh, I mean... Not even close. Bonav- because, by the way, I-, I can't believe this. I think I actually nailed this nailed this prediction, but... I've been saying for a month now, if Bonaventure goes like 16 and three, it's not going to matter that they played no non-con. That record is just going to be too nice compared to the quad one and two wins they can get in conference. The committee's going to have to put them in. By the way, that's going to happen now. The Bonnies are going to, the Bonnies are going to walk out of the season with three or four losses in total. 
they're heading that way. St. Louis is going to work out the kinks and they're going to get themselves in too. And so then all of a sudden, you're just hoping that one of the two Richmond teams picks up some big wins along the way. Dayton and Davidson are still lingering as potential bid thieves. I feel so much better about this than I felt at the end of January the last two years. I, I'm, I'm buying it too. I yeah. think we got a legitimate chance at four. And well, with Richmond too, what we got to think about, I know they took two terrible home losses to Hofstra and LaSalle. They also have three quad one wins, which is the most in the A-10 right now. So you never know if maybe the committee takes good wins into account more than bad losses. I think they still have a chance. I mean, they're, they've shot themselves in the feet a couple times, but you know, like that uh, Loyola win that we talked about, I think last week, that's still holding up really well. Kentucky stinks from like a national perspective, but that's barely a quad one win. I'm not giving up on the Spiders just yet either. I think VCU has a little bit of a better chance right now, but Richmond's still alive. Although this, when I wrote up these buys and sells, that was before I knew Richmond was about to go on a, a COVID pause. So that does hurt things a little bit, but I'll still give them a chance. I absolutely still believe in the Spiders. And honestly, I, I mentioned this with Petey. I still believe it. I think the best chance at the third bid is we just need either Richmond or VCU to sweep the other one because mm -hmm. both of those wins are going to look really good and it, it would basically kill the other one's resume completely unless literally, unless whoever lost those two goes undefeated the rest of the way. But if one of these two schools can pick up what would probably be a quad one win on the road and then a quad two win at home against the other one, that would push them over the cut line, at least temporarily. So uh, a sweep in the, I guess it's not the Lumber Liquidators Classic anymore. I forget who the new sponsor is. Oh, no. I didn't know that. A sweep there would completely change their bubble resume. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's also, too, this year, like with the A-10 being deeper than it has in the past, there's still a lot of quad two games for every team. There's just so many top 100, top 120-ish teams this year, which that helps a lot, too, even though, like, you know, beating Rhode Island or Davidson, that's not like a marquee win, but still looks pretty good, especially if it's on the road. And I think people lose that sometimes. You don't just need to be beating other tournament teams. If you beat NIT quality teams on the road, that helps. Definitely. And speaking of VCU, it, one of maybe the stocks on the rise already, I'm still buying, Hassan Ward. Go, comes out with the injury to Levi Stockard and starts against LaSalle, plays a career high in minutes, 27, career high in points, 13, ties his career high in rebounds with 10. He was six for seven from the field. He played his normal fantastic defense. And I think people outside of VCU, where they have understood for a while now how good he can be, I think people around the conference are beginning to take notice of Hassan Ward. I still think that he's got a lot of room to grow, and he's still a little underrated. I, would actually, I was thinking about it. I would actually have him deeply in consideration for all defensive team right now either the second or third best defensive big man in the conference so far this season, 
despite his limited minutes, the ceiling's just going to keep going up. And, you know, if he keeps putting up his big block numbers, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the preseason defensive player of the year next season. Yeah, no, I think that's one thing we've both been agreement, in agreement on for a while is that he needs to get a lot more minutes because he, he's starting to show his ceiling. Putting up a double-double in your first career start is just so exciting. And I agree, he's one of the best defensive players in the conference. I don't know if he'll make the all-defense team just because he doesn't play a ton, but hopefully that changes because I do think he is probably their best option at center. I'm still not sure he can really do much of anything on offense besides just catch and dunk. Mm-hmm. But with his defense, it just really doesn't matter. And the idea of him just running high, low pick and rolls with bones is really, really exciting. Just mm-hmm. spread spread three guys to the wing, play maybe Vince Williams at power forward to get an extra shooter out there, and just have a wide open paint with the speed of both of those guys running downhill, it, it could really be exciting. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, for my other buy, so later on, we're going to quickly get into some candidates for Rookie of the Year. And I have three guys here. None of them are going to win Rookie of the Year because none of them play enough minutes, but it's three freshmen that I think they're just good role players and I see them getting a lot more of a chance next year. I think Zimmy Wokeji for Dayton, Ishmael Leggett for Rhode Island, and Grant Huffman for Davidson. All guys that are coming off the bench getting between like 10 and 15 minutes a game, but I feel like they each just serve important roles on their team. For Zimmy, he's a guy that the first couple games of the year, he was barely getting into the game, and when he was out there, he wasn't making any sort of impact, but he had nine points in the Arch Baron Cup against St. Louis, including a couple key defensive plays. He also had 10 against VCU when the rest of the team just didn't show up. Leggett is the second most efficient player for Rhode Island, although he does have a very low usage, but he's a tough guy that can finish at the rim, and he's one of many Rhode Island players that can initiate contact and get to the free throw line, which is something that the Rams are just very good at. And then as for Grant Huffman, I'd say he might be Davidson's best perimeter defender, which is important because... As we know, the Wildcats aren't known for their defensive prowess. And he's also another guy that, despite having a low usage, he is still, he's efficient. He's shooting the three pretty well this year in limited attempts, and I think that's something he can build on next year. So I don't think any of these guys are going to make the all-rookie team. They just don't play enough. But they're all guys that I'm looking at next year where they could really improve their stock and potentially whether they're starters or just getting more minutes off the bench, I I think they're going to start putting up bigger stats. So the big one for me in that group is Nokeji, who I think was just incorrectly used to start the season. He was basically just a a spot-up shooter where they really need to – it's kind of like the Hassan Ward thing. You just need to get him running running downhill and give him the ball in the paint. He's got a lot of nice moves in there. You're, we're really starting to see the athleticism that I think we expected. He looks like the Leonard Hamilton prototype guy that ends up at Florida State, and it makes sense to me now why he got recruited there. I, I, just, do, I just don't even think they're starting to scratch the surface with what he can do right now. He is way, way, way more talented than his stats are showing, and you know, I, I, th- I think Anthony Grant's just trying to piece together what he truly can do. He's going to be a borderline 
all-conference guy as early as next year, though. Yeah, I hope so, because he's been really fun. And he also had one of the best dunks of the season against GW, which, I mean, it, I don't want to get carried away, but it reminded me of Obi a little bit. He's just – he looks really athletic, and I, I think he's got a lot of potential. The other guy that I would put in that group too, I was gonna, I talked about him earlier, so I was actually going to leave him out of my stock conversation. But Tyson Acuff kind of meets the same requirements for me where he doesn't play much. He's actually only scored more than three points in a game twice in his career, which were the two games this week. But he's just so talented. He's shown a lot of flashes as he started to get more playing time. So I, I would put him in there. But my next one, I'm going to buy the idea of St. Bonaventure potentially having four all-conference guys this year. This is where the six-man conference team is actually going to help them out. But the Bonnies right now are on track to win the league or at the very least finish in the top two or three. Yet they don't have a clear star. They don't have a clear player of the year winner to the fact that I think if, if Bonaventure wins the league and it's not by two or three games, I don't think they're going to end up with the, player of the, with, the, with the player of the year. I think it'll maybe go to a St. Louis guy if they finish second. It could potentially go to someone like Crutcher, Mitchell, or Grady if their team simply gets a double bye. But what Bonaventure does have is just a lot of excellent, excellent players. It reminds me of VCU two years ago. Kyle Lofton's going to make all-conference, no doubt. Jaron Holmes right now is looking like a no-doubt all-conference guy. And even though his offensive stats don't say so, Osuna Shunahi is so important on defense that he should be on the all-conference team. I'm not sure he will be, but Dominic Welch is really coming along now. He's gotten up to 12 points a game. He's the reason that their three-point shooting numbers even look somewhat respectable. And if he continues his hot streak and kind of ticks up the scoring one or two more points a game, Bonnie's win the conference. I would not be surprised at all if he finds his way onto the third team. The St. Bonaventure starting lineup is really impressive. And it also accounts for almost all their minutes because they don't really sub very much. But if, I don't know if that happens, like I'm going to call up the league office and move that we retroactively put Ryan Mike's all on last year's all conference team. Cause I just, if Dayton only put three guys on it last year, this St. Bonaventure team is really good, but they're not even close to what Dayton did last year. And I just, I don't know. I'm not like, even if those guys deserve it, I'd be, I'd be kind of upset as a Dayton fan. So I'm not, I'm not sure I like that one very much. Well, so as you start to go through, as you, if you, if anyone at home wants to really start to do the exercise of figuring out where we stand in terms of awards right now. The simple fact of the matter is that we're just not getting the transcendent performances across the board that we had last year. And so not only is player of the year still wide open, there's no clear, uh, actually first team, we might still have the same level of qualities we did last year, but we don't have the same number of, all conference caliber performers this season that we did last year. Whereas I think there was a legitimate 20 to 22 guys who you really could have made a case for 
making the all-conference team. And that's why Mike Zill got pushed off. He certainly should have been in consideration. This year, I just don't think we have the depth. And there's a universe where we go together to put, put our media ballots in place at the end of the year, and we're staring at it like, okay, there's only 14 guys that should be on here. And in that universe, maybe Dominic Welch does get on, even though he hasn't been as good as Mike Zill was last year. Yeah, I haven't looked at it quite as closely, although I think part of it might have to do with this being the end of January and teams just haven't played as many games as we're used to. So I kind of feel like in this last month where hopefully we get as many games as possible, I think it's going to get a, a little bit more clear. But that is a good point that, you know, maybe there aren't quite as many guys that are individually standing out and that could be causing it to be different. Well, and by the way, this happened two years ago where – I couldn't find a 15th player. Like I, I that was the, the toughest thing on the entire ballot was finding a 15th all conference, all conference worthy guy, because I thought there were only 14 that year. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. That, that'll be an interesting one, but for the Bonnies, it, it will be kind of tough just because all five of their starters are playing really well. And I think you could even make a case for Attaway. I'm not you sure. D- if you you him can. Up. Yeah, he's been really but good too. It's, so. it's just—it's not going to happen for him because it's basically, basically, you're arguing for a guy who does Ryan Mikesell things on a worse team mm-hmm. with lesser stats. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good comparison, I guess. But anyway, I just have one more buy, and it's not going to be a discussion. I just see Fordham right now as Dogecoin, where it's trading for like less than a penny. You never know. Like if they get a new coach next year, I I'm, I would spend a couple bucks just buying some Fordham stock, and that's the type of thing where it it's probably going to be worthless in a year, but you have a chance for a really good ROI. So, with Fordham being as cheap as it is, I I think you might as well. That's just a gamble, though. So I'm actually get I'm I'm going to save my last buy. Um, I'm going to go into one of my cells. Carter Collins as the star and leader of Davidson. Um, It's not like he's, let me put it this way. Carter Collins is still having a great year, but he's kind of on the downslope right now. He was looking like he might be the guy there for a, a little bit for Davidson. Now it's just becoming clear once again, that this is Kellen Grady's team and, Carter Collins is just kind of nothing more than a guy who keeps the ball moving and helps their three-point offense. No shame in that. He's still a really good th- – well, hell, I'm not even sure he's the third option in some games now with Breakovic actually starting to play better. He's just – he's a good third and fourth option. He's kind of where we thought he was at the beginning of the year. Um, things are just going downhill for him. I, I had him as a – potential all-conference sleeper he might still sneak onto the third team but i'm not too optimistic about it anymore yeah i think that's a good one um and even with Collins coming off two quieter games he's still way above and beyond where he has been the last couple years of his career so he's still very important to this team and having a great season but yeah i don't know if he's quite that all-conference guy he was looking like for a few weeks there earlier in the year so i think that's a good one for me, I'm going to sell St. Louis as a three-point shooting team, which, you know, I still think the Billikens are a very strong offensive team, but right now they're 
just under 40% from three, which is 15th in the country. And I kind of saw this as something that might take a little bit longer for them to recover from, uh, from the COVID pause. I thought maybe three-point shooting could just take a little bit longer to develop. And they only went three for 13 against Dayton in that first game back. I don't really see this as a huge, huge issue because even though St. Louis has shot the three well so far this year, they still do most of their scoring in the paint. So this isn't something that's going to break their team, but I just think 39 and a half percent is really high for them. And I don't see that keeping up. So I think they're still going to go down as one of the more efficient offensive teams in the conference. I just see that dipping a couple percentage points. Yeah. I I think that that was the natural end game of this anyway. So Mm -hmm. gotta agree with you on that. Although I I will say Jordan Goodwin is actually going to put up like semi respectable three point shooting numbers this year. Yeah. And you saw in the Dayton game, once again, he has actually found a way to kind of get rid of his hitch on his three point shot. He's learned, he's understanding that he needs to just catch and fire when he's down in the corner his threes looked good, and then you see him get back to the free throw line where he catches the ball, looks like he's a robot in need of an oil can, and bricks back to back. I still mm-hmm. think it's com- I still think the hitch is completely mental for him. And what I actually want to see him do is catch is when he's at the free, free throw line, stand two steps behind the line, catch the ball from the ref, step in and shoot and basically leave himself a little bit of space for his momentum to potentially carry himself forward while staying behind the line. Because for him, he, he's not good if he has to stand there for 15 seconds and think about it and then catch and dribble and slowly pull it up. He needs to find a way to turn his foul shooting into a natural rhythm. Isn't that, that was what Jack Gibbs did, right? from Davidson yeah, he, he always made sure he got a perfect bounce pass from the ref and he would step into his free throws and I mean he was one of the best shooters in the conference so you never know maybe that is something he should think about I'm convinced the Goodwin thing is mental because he yeah. looks so much better on an inflow catch and shoot three-pointer or at the end of a shot clock a desperate heave than when he's just standing there wide open because he overthinks it his shot does not look bad I've I've been on this for two years and we're starting to actually see it play out yeah, his shooting numbers are actually, they're respectable. He's 68% on free throws and 30% on three switches. Better than what he was at last year. So that is a huge improvement. In St. Louis, they are going to end up being a better three-point shooting team than they have been recently. Again, it's just like yeah, 39%. I don't know. That's that's really impressive. And I I see that more of just like regressing to the mean for them. But who knows? I mean, I... If I'm wrong on that, then if they get back to form shooting threes, then they're probably going to be the best, like clearly the best team in the conference once again. So I'm going to sneak in a hold here on a distressed asset, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to start selling yet. Um, You know, property values in in TJ Weeks archipelago have plummeted this year. We're falling on hard times here. It's beginning to look like the mortgage crisis. Um, for those who've, who watch Arrested Development, I, I feel like I'm in the house in Sun Valley. There's nobody around, around me. 
Um, I still believe everything Weeks does still looks good. It still looks like the reasons that I believed in him in the first place. But his three-point shooting's at 30%. He's only putting up 10 a game. The thing that's honestly probably more concerning is at two and a half rebounds a game, which is just way, way, way too low. I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know if it's a confidence problem. Maybe it's the fact that he had to do all of his injury rehab during the weird COVID off season, but just something's off with TJ weeks. It's not his shooting form. He looks just as athletic as he always did. And I just, I really can't put my finger on it because it's not something that shows up on tape. He's getting good looks. He's releasing the ball with beautiful precision and it's just not going in. So I'm not going to panic. His, his value has gone down substantially. I own too much to kind of uh, keep buying on top of the holdings, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to start selling yet. Yeah, I'd kind of say the same thing about my Hyungjoon Lee stock because, as you know, I bought a ton of it before the season started, and it looked great for a while, but now Lee's kind of quieted down for a few games. I, it's kind of the same thing. I know what he's capable of, so I'm going to hold on to that stock, but, yeah, for him it's gone down a little bit too. But I think Weeks, I mean, he has been a little quiet this year. He hasn't gotten quite as much playing time as I expected. But I think the potential is still there for him to be really good for UMass. I mean, but we're also – with Hyungjun Lee too, though, we're also like three good games away from him being right back in the all-conference discussion. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that one's probably not quite as good of an example. But I will say my other sell really, it's kind of just UMass as a whole team. And – you know, they're 4-2. and two. They're still near the top of the A-10 standings, but I just look at their resume this year. Their wins are against LaSalle twice, Fordham, and then they beat Rhode Island at home in overtime, which that one's a really good win. But I know it was kind of a while ago now. When they lost to Davidson at home, I, I lost some confidence in UMass. I just don't really see them anymore as a, a team that could potentially sneak up and make a run in the A-10 tournament. I don't really see them in the same group as Dayton or Davidson right now, or even, I know they beat Rhode Island, but I still kind of feel like Rhode Island's had the more impressive season. So, I don't know, maybe next year for UMass, but I see them closer to the, like, 8, 9, 10 range than I do as a potential dark horse. Every time I look at the standings and see them in, like, fourth, I just kind of get surprised. I forget that they're... four and two because i've just had them in that spot this whole year that's exactly how i feel and i just don't the record's good if they beat davidson back on january 24th like that maybe that would have given me more confidence but at the end of the day i just think they're too inconsistent they also had a couple bad games in the non-con so i don't know if they really have enough to put it together and make a deep run in the tournament so my sell, and I'm not even sure how much value they have left anyway, but I'm just getting the hell out. George Mason. Yeah. Um, I think they kind of – they got a little bump. They swept St. Joe's last week. Uh, it was The Bonaventure game was just flat-out pathetic. This team has so much offensive talent, and Miller's playing out of his mind, and Tyler Kolek's really starting to come into his own. And they have literally no offensive system. 
like this is uh, I, I don't know if they call plays their play is hey just like dribble down the court and see if somebody gets open and if not just chuck up a contested three like this is awful this team has legitimate talent they should not be fighting just to try to escape the pillow fight with the way that Miller and Kolek are playing the fact that they have green AJ Wilson Oduro Hartwell like none of those guys are playing up to snuff because nothing is being done in their offense to help them out. Like, I'm not sure I've fully said this this emphatically at any point in the three years of the pod. They cannot bring Dave Paulson back after this. This is so bad. They look like they've literally given up on trying to score the ball. Yeah, I mean, they're a team that on paper, like, you know, you can't use the excuse they're a young team because they aren't. They've got a lot of seniors and juniors. And, like, Josh Oduro is a guy in the preseason. I thought, oh, maybe he's a guy that could improve and raise George Mason's ceiling. And he did improve. He's pretty good this year. But, yeah, George Mason just stinks. I agree with what you said. I, I didn't have them as a sell because I don't think I've ever had any George Mason stock to begin with. I didn't really ever have much faith in them at the at any point this year, but yeah, I mean their record's decent right now because they just beat up on St. Joe's a couple times. But I just say like even though they did beat UMass, um, who I had as a sell, like I I don't see them doing much in the A10 tournament really, and I think I think they've got a tougher schedule coming up, which means they're gonna end up with a worse record than what they have right now. Yeah, I, I mean, look, if you you look at the team that they're tied with right now in the standings, LaSalle, like if you gave Ashley Howard this roster and let him work his magic with it, we'd be talking about whether or not they could sneak up to like six mm-hmm. or maybe even higher. And yet I, I have literally no belief whatsoever that the Mason's going to avoid the pillow fight at this point. Yeah, it's probably going to come down to them and LaSalle. Because I think Fordham and St. Joe's are definitely going to be in the bottom four. GW probably will, but they just haven't played as many games. Yeah, the last spot's probably going to come down to those two teams. And I think Mason's probably got the better roster, but I don't know they if I have as much confidence. not a question, but... Yeah, I don't have that much confidence, though. I mean, they do have a tiebreaker. I mean, they, they did beat LaSalle by about 100 points, so <laughs> that is one thing to consider, but... LaSalle's just been like that all year. They're inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, LaSalle's going to find a way to pull out another, like, two or three tough games, though. Yeah, like, for George Mason, I don't really see them. Like, when they're playing a good team like St. Bonaventure over the weekend, I'm never really worried they're going to pull off a big upset. I think they, they can beat bad teams, but they really haven't threatened against anyone good this year. Their closest game was they lost to VCU by five at home. Otherwise, they've never really challenged anyone that much. All right, well, I didn't really have any more. Uh, Did you want to get to your last buy? Yeah, so my final buy, Javante Perkins' Player of the Year case. Hmm. And I I think this is going to get very interesting, especially given that SLU no longer feels like a lock to win this conference. Like I said, though, if the Bonnies win because of kind of the collective nature of their starting lineup, not sure they're, I'm not sure that Lofton or Holmes wins player of the year. If Slew's a close second, I think it probably, I would actually bet that it would go to one of those guys. And while 
I still think Goodwin is actually more important to the Billikens because of his rebounding and defense. I don't see Javante Perkins' scoring numbers going down at all. Look, he played an awful, awful first half coming back from the COVID pause against Dayton. That's not surprising at all. And then you just kind of see him late in that game settle into what he does best. He was no longer trying to stretch the floor for them. He was facing defenders who did not have the speed to stick with him the whole way on a drive. So he would just get himself to the foul line and hit that little pull-up jumper. He played, honestly, beginning to end, he played a poor game by his standards and yet ended up breaking 20 points anyway. Got to 20, kicked in four rebounds too. And if St. Louis finishes top two, regardless of Goodwin's impact, I think we've seen that the way people like to vote for this, I think Perkins ends up winning player of the year because he's going to stick around at 18, 19 points a game on a great team. And that's the profile that wins you that award. It's an interesting one. I think for me, I was going through my first team because I haven't really done that in a while. And right now, I don't really feel good about putting two players from any one team on the first team. And part of that has to do with St. Louis just only having the one conference game. And I, I tend to strongly weight conference play when I think of these awards. I think for me personally, I'd rather have Goodwin just since he's averaging like 11 rebounds along with some other very impressive stats. But you could make a case for Perkins too. And you might be right that the people actually voting on the award are going to pay attention to his scoring. And I also wouldn't be that surprised too. If St. Louis does end up winning the conference, there's a pretty good chance both of them make it. So I I could see that as a possibility. And I think it's a, I think it's two different conversations too, where if we're going to have the discussion of who is going to be the best player in the conference by year end, there's, as I mentioned the other night on Twitter, there's 11 guys who can still make a case for being the MVP. Holmes, Lofton, Ashunahi, Goodwin Perkins, Gilliard, Golden, Highland, Crutcher, Grady, and Mitchell, all the, based on a zillion different ways that the rest of this season plays out. And the only one that's really a simple answer is if VCU has a great second half and and wins the conference, Bones is winning player of the year. That's the Mm -hmm. only one where there's a clear path. Um, There's so many other guys who can play their way into deserving it. But when you really think about how they tend to award this, give out this award, the prediction to me is really easy. If we're just going to guess, Perkins is the leader in the clubhouse by a huge margin. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I don't know. I just think it, it's tough this year with like teams having different numbers of games being played. But if Perkins keeps up what he's been doing, and right now he's shooting 50% from three, which is just insanely good. Uh, I mean, he's got that reputation of being that go-to scorer now, and I think coaches recognize that. So if he keeps putting up these crazy scoring numbers, he'll, he'll have a good chance for sure. And I agree with what you said about Bones, too. I think he's kind of an interesting case because for VCU, they've got so many different guys in their rotation, but he's really the only one that stands out on offense. I, I think he might... I don't know for sure. He might be the only guy averaging double figures, and if not, he's not. 
Maybe Vince Williams averages Williams like 10 still, or above. Williams is still slightly above 10. But Bones is like way ahead. He's got like 19 yeah. a game right now. So, yeah, I think he's got a good chance if ECU ends up winning the league. But that's the thing is of the of what is supposed to be the four, the top four right now, Davidson and Dayton could still work their way into it. But Bonaventure is a by-committee thing. Mm-hmm. SLU is really kind of Perkins on one end and Goodwin on the other. And Richmond is really the same story with Golden and Gilliard. VCU Bones is just clearly and unquestionably their best player. Yeah, I think so. So I guess with that, we, uh, we did want to get into some rookie of the year discussion. Are you ready to do that now? Any names you want to throw out for that award? Yeah, this is, this is a crapshoot too right now. Um, really is. I, I'm, for me, I'm not even going to try to figure out who I would give it to right now because we're just going to – so much is going to change in February. This is not last year where Trey Mitchell had basically locked up the award by now. Um, or if I, two years ago. Yeah, if I was predicting, I would say that right now it's probably either Mustafa Amziel or Tyler Kolick because the voters tend to just reward raw scoring and rebounding numbers. Um, the other one is Sam Menenga is a sneaky kind of dark horse. If Davidson can close out this year strong and Menenga ends up just having a much better February than Amziel, he's going to put up, he's going to just simply have a better record than most of the other candidates. And so he's, he's lingering around too. Tell you what, uh, one name I want to give, and he's not going to win, I don't think, because his team's so bad. But Jordan Hall's averaging 8.5 points, 5.1 rebounds, and 5.9 assists. Before the season with Stu Ledecky, we threw out the idea, like, which player can average a triple nickel? And I promise you we did not say Jordan Hall. But that's really impressive. And I would at least give him some consideration right now. Although I... I would also hate to give it to someone on a team as bad as St. Joe's. Yeah. And some other names I want to throw out too. Um, if Chad Baker just continues to go flamethrower every other game, he could get into the discussion with how great his shooting numbers are beginning to look. Um, Zimmy Nokeji might be the most talented freshman in the conference, but he just will, he just has no shot at getting enough raw numbers to win the award. Um, I guess Gibson Jimerson's technically a freshman, which can yeah. kind of throw this whole thing through a loop. I think Weeks is too, but I didn't even think about those guys. But if yeah, I Jimerson, think if Jimerson really catches fire, he has a shot too. What about you know his stats? Don't jump off the page, but if I was just picking five guys for all, all rookie team, I, I think I'd have to say Ace Baldwin since he started every game for VCU. He's averaging almost five assists a game, and I think he's been improving throughout the season. I'd give him some consideration, but his scoring numbers just aren't very good, so I so don't think he'll win. If we're predicting he has no chance in hell of winning rookie of the year because he's not going to score enough, mm-hmm. but if like if he continues to play the way he has, I'm putting him on my all-rookie team without even thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I just think for him, like the fact that he started every game on a really good team and he's done a good job as a freshman point guard, like that almost holds up more to me than Tyler Kolick putting up numbers on George Mason, which maybe that's a bad way to think about it, but I've been impressed by Baldwin this year. No, and that, 
honestly, Baldwin impacts the game more than Kolek does. Kolek's yeah. raw numbers just look better, but Baldwin is a big reason why the ball flows the way it does for VCU. And he, he's kind of the perfect partner for Bones to allow him to just play off the ball and just get buckets. Yeah, I, I think so. But it is an interesting year for this award. It's the first time in a while, because if you go back three years, too, uh, Calvin Grady ran away with it. But this year, we don't have anyone averaging, like, 17 points a game. Uh, no one's just pulled way ahead. So there's a lot of different ways you could go with it. I think right now I'd have to pick Mustafa Amzil. Just because he's got similar scoring numbers to Kolek, but he's also a better rebounder, and he's just on a much better team. But, you know, Kolek's got an argument. I think Baldwin has a chance. And then if you're into triple nickels like we are, then Jordan Hall, I mean, shoot, that one could be a possibility. Yeah, this is this is an award that's going to be decided in February. Mm-hmm. And I think basically if you throw out the whole crew of I'd say between Amzil, Kolek, and Menenga, if any of those three is just awesome in February, then this isn't going to be close. But if they're yeah. not, then this gets really, really, really interesting. It's it's absolutely there for the taking. Yeah, should be a really interesting race for that award. But I don't know. I just think right now, kind of the same as all conference, there's just a whole bunch of guys that are going to have a chance to, to win it. So you're right. Um, still too early to call that race yeah and this is honestly i think one of the things that'll be really fun too we absolutely will be bringing back the media awards this year i hope that uh all of our distinguished voters who might be listening right now uh that you guys are excited to get your ballots once again and i think that unlike last year we're going to end up with some big breaks in what actually happens where really the only significant difference last year was Kyle Lofton barely makes his way onto third team all-conference for the media and then makes first team all-conference for the coaches. So this year I think we're going to have a lot of breaks. I th- and I'm going to go out on a limb right now. Um, I think at least one of the major awards, we're going to have a significant difference. So, Yeah, I hope so. That'd make it interesting this year. And I think you're right. It could happen. But we're still far away from that. We still got plenty of basketball left to play, plenty left to be decided. We got some fun games going on this week. Just fingers crossed that Duquesne Dayton and that gorgeous arena opening happens on Tuesday. We got Bonaventure and SLU on Saturday in a showdown that could decide the conference. And a game that looks shaky at this point, but... Richmond Dayton on Friday, still not canceled yet. We can still hold out hope for that. Hope that everyone just continues to enjoy the games, that they continue to enjoy the podcast. As always, let us know if there's anything that we could be doing better or anything that you want us to keep doing. Everybody stay safe out there. Sweet!